This morning, I want us to turn to the Gospel of Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, and I want to read from verses 36 all the way through 50, and we've been going through people who've had encounters with God, and have basically been going through this whole series of when I met Jesus. We're talking about people who met Jesus, and it's Sometimes it really is, I don't know, the word is overwhelming. It's really overwhelming when you go through these stories as you walk along. And for me especially, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but for me it has just overwhelmed me when I read and studied these stories. Because it reveals so much. So much about Jesus and God to me. And even this morning as we're going to read the story about this woman who washes Jesus' feet with her tears and uh, wipes his feet with her, her hair. Anoints his feet with expensive perfume. I pray that we'll get a glimpse of who God is and why she was moved to do something like this. Why she was moved to do something like this. And I'll be honest, as I was writing this, I had tears rolling down my my face, basically. I was really, and I had to stop to get a hold of myself. But I was so overwhelmed by God and His presence, but just His goodness in our lives. And in my life, and it's just amazing when you realize how much Jesus really means to you. I want to challenge you. When is the last time you really stopped to think about how much he means to you? Besides the cliches, oh, he's my all in all. He's my everything. This morning I want to read the story from chapter 7, Luke chapter 7, starting from verse 36. And you realize the similar kind of story is written in actually all the Gospels in some form or the other. In John 12 and then again in, in Mark 14. And also if you read Matthew 26, you see a similar kind of story. Uh, and scholars aren't, uh, are kind of divided whether this is the same person. I mean most, most people think it is the same per- person. Uh, because there's no name given to her here in, in Luke's uh, gospel. And uh, some think it's otherwise. And I'm, I don't know, just, just reading it. I, I think this may have been different. Because I don't think Jesus' Jesus's ministry lasted three years. And there's more than one person who anointed him. That's what I think. And so even though it doesn't identify the person, I tend to think this is just a different person than Mary Magdalene or someone else. Anyway, uh, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees... Invited Jesus to have dinner with him. He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured poured perfume on them. 
When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to him, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. That she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Got to recognize here, the, uh, verse 39 says, He said this to himself, okay? But Jesus knowing all things. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which one, which one of them would love him more? Simon replied, and it's kind of interesting, it's not really a sure answer. He says, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her, with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her love, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests, the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Church, there is so much in this passage. I know I say this very often and you probably tune me out too. But when I start writing, there is so much I write. And I'm like, how do I put this down into a short piece as such? But I encourage you to just dig into God's word. Because let me tell you, once you start digging, you can't stop digging. You cannot stop digging because it's so rich. The deeper you go, the more your curiosity. The more anxious, not anxious in terms of anxiety, but the more you're like anxious to know more. What else is in there? And I really encourage you to do that with God's word. Anyway, this passage again, like I said, I tend to believe, I, I tend to, again, slightly tend to believe that this woman is different from the uh, women and the Mary we see in the other passages. But one thing for sure, this woman is identified as an sinful woman, a sinful woman. And uh, it's pretty clear here that everybody around knew that too. And just want to point one thing out before I get in here that while the story is about this woman. While the story is about this woman, you got to realize that she is not the only person or element in this woman. Because the story is about Jesus trying to reach out to the Pharisees too. Because I know I and a lot of preachers give the Pharisees and the religious leaders a hard time, but we forget Rather, we should not forget that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. 
not just the lost prodigal, but also the lost older brother. These religious leaders accused Jesus of being only interested in the sinners and the tax collectors and the drunkards and being a friend of sinners. But you got to realize as much as he was a sinner, I mean a sinner's friend, sorry. As much as he was a friend of these sinners, he was also a friend of the religious leaders. And and the reason I say this is because you see several times he goes out and sits and eats with them to have a conversation with them. I mean, Luke chapter 11, you see the same thing happening. Luke chapter 14, you see he's sitting down and having a conversation with these Pharisees because he have one purpose too, to seek and save the lost. He's not really, and we need to understand, he's not, he didn't come just to save the low lost. He came to save the high lost too. Not just the low lives who were lost. And it just hit me again as I was reading this story that Jesus is about revealing himself and who the truth really is. Not just to the people out there, but he's also revealing the truth of who he is to the people in here. In here too. The truth of who he really is. And of course on this occasion you, you see that Jesus is doing the same thing, reaching out to this Pharisee. But the emphasis, yes, is definitely on this uh, woman of Questionable character, prostitute basically is what is implied right here. And I was thinking about this. Did, did, yes, the Pharisee invited him into his house. We know his, as you read the story, we know his intentions were not, were not clear. Okay, I want to know about Jesus right now. His intentions were definitely not that actually. But, you know, I was thinking more and more, were the Pharisees and religious leaders of those days really interested in people's lives being changed? Were they really interested in a blind man receiving his sight? Were they really interested in someone who was a cripple being made whole again? Were they really interested in this woman who had been lived a dreadful life but now has changed her life? Were they really interested in that? And it challenged me. Because sometimes, you know, they love the fanfare. They love all the, uh, the, the what, what can he say? They were famous people because of the way they lived their lives. They loved that fame that they got. And it challenged me because us as a church, we need to be about one thing. To see lives being transformed. Lives being genuinely changed. By the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ. We cannot put up barriers for people to come to him like they did. We cannot do that. Anyway, let's look at this. Verse verse 36. One of the Pharisees basically requested him. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. Now again, think about where this is happening. This is happening around, uh, if you look at Luke, this is happening around Galilee, which is in the northern part of uh, Israel, basically. So it's happening around there. Galilee, where was Jesus from? Around that area of Galilee, right? So he technically should have known who this woman is in some way or the other. Anyway, so he's out there and he's, of course, preaching and teaching. And in all likelihood, like he did, he'd go to the synagogues too. He wasn't thrown out of the synagogues yet. We know he did that earlier, right in the beginning. And so it's pretty common. I mean, it's not too far 
uh, to imagine that he was out there in the synagogue preaching and like many people do right now, if there's a guest speaker, we take him out for lunch or take him out for dinner. And that was a common practice even then. The rabbis or someone there would take this person who is speaking, another visiting rabbi, out for lunch, for a meal. And so you think, I mean, it's not that, uh, what should I say, something so surprising to everybody. That this Pharisee would invite a rabbi, a visiting rabbi or a teacher into his house. And so we don't know what the whole occasion was, but we, all we know is that he invited Jesus and Jesus accepted the offer. Jesus accepted the offer. Again, the intentions of the guy are not really written down clearly, but we can imagine what it was because he was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee, and if you know anything about Pharisees, they were one tight-knit group of people. They were one tight-knit group of people, and the truth is this. By this time, they had already reached their decision about what they wanted to do with Jesus. They just wanted to get rid of him now because they hated him. They absolutely hated him. They hated him because what? He hung out with the outcasts. He hung out with the drunkards, the tax collectors, the sinners. He hung out with them. Some, these people would never be welcome into a Pharisee's home as such. I mean, they would never be defiled by being in the company of someone like this. But Jesus is being defiled all the time because he's hanging out with these wrong kind of people. So they hated him for that. They hated him for his message because what? His message was against their self-righteous hypocrisy all the time. So he called them out and they hated his message because they, he, I mean, he just didn't, he didn't mince words or sugarcoat things. They hated his message because they were all about the law and keeping the law. But he was trying to teach them about the heart of the law and they missed the point and they hated him for that. They hated him because he hung out with the wrong people. They hated his message and they hated it because people were starting to follow him. People were going around because he's doing these miracles here. He's feeding 5,000 people. He's doing all this stuff. And obviously, he's gaining popularity. And they hated him because now people aren't coming to them. They're going running after Jesus. And so they hated him again. And of course, they hated him now because now he's getting real deep now. Because now he started forgiving sins. And that is blasphemy. Who does this carpenter think he is? Isn't this Mary's son? Isn't his dad just the carpenter who lives down the road? And who does he think he is to forgive sins? And so they are really angry with him. They hatred. They hated him. They hated his message. They've already reached the verdict in their own heads to get rid of him. And now all they're doing is in the process of accumulating all this evidence to use against him. That's all it's about. And I can clearly see that this guy is doing almost the same thing. Trying to bring Jesus in. Jesus is in my town. Hey, let me invite him home. He's going to say something. He's going to do something wrong. And now we can use that as evidence to condemn him. And that's his intention here. That's his intention here. Because you see the way he treats Jesus. Doesn't wash his feet. Something that's really normal. The common courtesy he doesn't give to Jesus or any guest that normally comes to their house. And so you see that happening here. He is not, check, yes. He is not doing what he's supposed to do. And he's here ready to trick Jesus into doing something wrong. Anyway, Jesus goes in and he says, goes into the Pharisee's house and he says he reclined at the table. 
he reclined at the table and again you've got to get this picture of Jesus and the people in those days reclining at the table even in the lord's supper i know we show who is the da vinci or whoever does that painting he got it a little wrong because there weren't any tables and they weren't sitting as pretty as everybody was sitting down there they were reclining i think i got a picture of that tristan do you have a picture of that just put that up this is what it is because this sets it up really well it's just them just sitting if you can see there's a it's like a chase lounge kind of thing you know everybody's comfortable they never put their feet close to the food the feet were always the furthest thing from the food Okay and so they're reclining there and Jesus is reclining there he's making himself comfortable he's not just I'm going to eat and scram from here as quick as I can he's here because he knows there's going to be something that's going to happen and he's ready for it and so he's there waiting and this uh, this whole idea is that these we don't know how many people were there but they're definitely guests and the guests of honor and everybody's sitting around this table reclining at this table which is in the middle you know And now again we don't know what it is but in an occasion like this it's very common practice to uh what they would say they would leave the doors open so people could come around it's very different from when you have a guest you kind of close the doors bar the doors don't let anybody else come around right because you got some someone important in your house but this is a very common practice back in the days as they were reclining people would come along and stand around around them in the dark they're not supposed to interfere with what happening but this is an important guy here right the pharisee has to show off or the people have to show off this important guy and of course the crowd is curious and want to learn from what's happening here and so picture people in the background standing in the background because that's really i mean that's what they did the poor people would take advantage and as the people were there that they would take advantage and beg you know in those in the background they'd beg people for something people like you talk about daily workers that Jesus used as example people who weren't hired for the day they'd come around this is their time they might get some food they might get something from there and so it's a total picture of not just Jesus standing all by himself or sitting here all by himself with this tax collector and there's nobody else here there's a big crowd of people around here And so they are again in the background as such standing in the background and then you say what happens right now they like so that sets it up. And verse 37 it says and a woman in town uh there is a word the Greek word uh, there is a word here and it says now a woman now another translation says behold and behold a woman the emphasis here is that something is about to happen it sets it up really well in the greek something is about to happen and behold verse 37 a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that jesus was sitting at the pharisee's house was eating at the pharisee's house so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume so we we are introduced to this woman in the city of course people know her because of her reputation people know her that she's a sinner and basically a prostitute that's what it is and now as people are coming and surrounding she hears that Jesus is also there and so she's taking advantage of that and getting in there to meet with Jesus this is the kind of woman like i said that we are introduced to here and it's very clear time twice at least it says that she is sinful she is sinful yet she comes in and now she's bringing an alabaster jar of perfume 
Now, it wasn't that she was, you know, on her way to see Jesus and she needed perfume, so she stopped to grab it on the way. It's pretty deliberate. The Bible makes it pretty clear that she was deliberate in her actions. The perfume was not cheap, but she was deliberate in. This prostitute was deliberate in coming to Jesus, but she brought this perfume with her, with her to come to Jesus. Now, you got to think about this. Perfume, yes. What did she use perfume for? To make herself appealing, to seduce, to lure men. That very thing that she used to seduce men, she's using that same thing to express her worship. That same thing she's using to express her worship to Jesus. There's something in there. And of course, you got a picture, it's I imagine it's in the nighttime, so there's candles. Not everything is well lit. And so I can imagine and picture her just kind of, she doesn't want attention. Definitely not going into a Pharisee's house because he's probably going to just kick her out, get his servants to drag her out or something. And so she's slipping in through the shadows, probably in the shadows. She's coming in there. She's never going to be in the middle. She's in the background. But she positions herself right behind Jesus. Positions herself Right at the feet of Jesus. And if you saw this picture, Jesus is facing one way, his feet are the other way. And she's positioning herself behind him as such. Again, it's dark, so they probably don't recognize her immediately. Now, people are welcome here, but not this person. People are welcome, but she should not be here in this place. And I love what someone wrote. He said, the violent outrage of the purity Of this home of the Pharisee. When they discovered there was a prostitute among them. Violent outrage. I was like, yeah, it's true. He would go berserk. If he saw it, they wouldn't. I mean, of course he sees and you see his reaction later than that. Anyway, she takes her place at his feet. Probably her mind wondering how and when. She came with one purpose. You got to understand. Her purpose was to anoint Jesus. That's why she brought the perfume in the first place, to anoint him. Not just his feet, but to anoint him. And so she's standing there waiting for an opportunity to cover his head with this, anoint his head with this expensive perfume. Shocking, basically, that she was ready to do this. She stayed out of the way, waiting for her opportunity to anoint him. Waiting for her opportunity to anoint him. That was what was in her heart. And it's kind of amazing because this woman had to have had, the Bible doesn't say whether she had met Jesus earlier. But she knew enough about Jesus that she knew there was something different about him, that she brought oil, expensive oil, perfume to anoint him. She knew something about him. I think the Holy Spirit was already working in her life way before she went into that house. Way before she went to the Pharisee's house. And then when she went there, she met him and she said, when I met Jesus, he accepted me. He accepted me because really everybody in town knew who she was. The host Pharisee knew who she was. Now, how many of you think Jesus did not know who she was? 
He was from Galilee. This is in the Galilean area, basically, right? So he would have known who she was. It's probably, I mean, highly likely that he knew who this woman was. Who is this woman touching me? He knew who she was, but he still accepted her. He still accepted her, accepted her sacrifice that cost a lot. In that acceptance, there was no hint of condemnation. As she was crying there and wiping his feet with her tears and kissing his feet, there's not a single word directed at this woman as she's doing all this. Not a single word of condemnation or anything else. But there is conviction because she's crying there. Just being in his presence. Listening to what he's saying. Nothing he's saying to her. But just being in his presence. She's so overwhelmed. The conviction is evident. And she's crying there. Crying. Because of the conviction but no condemnation. And that's what Paul reminds us what. Anyone is in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Absolutely no condemnation. God does not condemn you. God does not condemn us. The challenge we have, and I've encountered this, yes, in my own life, but also talking to people. We get it here, but we don't get it here. We get the no condemnation here because we've learned about it, read about it, and you know, known about it since we were born probably and born and brought up in the church. But have we allowed that concept of no condemnation to really live in our hearts? No matter what I'm doing, no matter what I'm doing, God is not going to be mad at me. Sometimes that's way too good to believe. Growing up in the church, and I'll be honest, I was scared because what if Jesus came and I was doing something wrong? When am I going to be condemned to hell? There is no condemnation. When you are in Christ, God's not angry with us, church. Please understand that God is not angry with you. When you blow it, he does not reject you. He doesn't kick you out of his family just because you make a mistake. When you are inconsistent, he does not get impatient and tell you to go away. Even when you're inconsistent, when you sin, he does not hold a grudge against you. Every time you come to him, he doesn't remind you of what you did in the past. There is no condemnation because he has forgiven our sins, past, present, and future. He says this, I came into the world to save it, not to condemn it. kind of funny because the Bible does not say there are no mistakes for those who are in Christ. It says there are no condemnation. There is no condemnation. When I met Jesus, he knew who I was. He knew what I did, but he accepted me anyway. Number two, when I met Jesus, he defended me. He defended me even though he didn't talk to me directly. He defended me. Now the Pharisee notices what's happening and he's not happy. And I can picture his face, the frown that's coming upon his face. Because all of a sudden he realizes what's happening. Who let this woman in? Everybody's welcome to my house except her. 
She's defiling. I don't know. Probably has to get Clorox and wash his whole house after this. I don't know. She's defiling my house. The sacredness of my house. She has no business here. And guess what? She's touching him. Come on. And I can picture his mind working through on how to get the attention of his chief servant in order to get him and throw her out or whatever. I can picture his, her, him going through that, trying to get that attention. And even as he's planning this, you can see what happens to him. He says, if this man were a prophet, he's talking to himself here. If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. Because she is a sinner. He's thinking this in his mind and... If Jesus were a royal prophet, he would know who this woman is touch, who's touching him. It's kind of ironic, really, and kind of funny because the Pharisee is looking for evidence to trick Jesus, but he never ever accuses Jesus of visiting with prostitutes, really. Because that's, that's clear as day, but he doesn't do that. He, he says that's ignorance. He, for him, it's just confirming to him his decision with, along with the rest of his Pharisees that this guy's a fake. Because if he's a royal prophet, he would know who that is. And for him, this woman doing this just confirms in his heart his own delusion as such. That Jesus is a fake. But what does Jesus defend really? If you look at the other gospels and the same kind of account. People are mad at this woman. What does he do? He says, hey, leave her be. What was he defending? He was defending her act of worship. Defending her act of worship. That's what he was defending. She was worshiping him as she poured out her heart in tears and wiped his feet and poured and anointed that, her feet with that perfume. All she was doing was worshiping him. And Jesus stood up to defend her. Now again, think with me, as much as the Pharisees do that, do we keep people from encountering and worshipping God just because they do it differently than we do it? They do it differently than we do it, and so do we get upset? You know, the Pharisees were all about, it's us four and no more. We do it this way. If you want to be in this club, you got to do it our way. We can never be a church like that. Because that's not what Jesus is all about. We have to make it okay for people from different backgrounds to approach God and worship Him. Worship Him. God, or Jesus defends her. Because He is for her. God is for us. Who can be against us? That's the whole idea here. God is not against us. He is always going to be for us regardless of how colorful our past is. He is always going to be for us. He's not trying to trip us up or make us fall and trick us into doing something wrong as such. Please understand that God is always going to fight for you. God is always going to be in your corner fighting for you. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Why? Because he is with you. You can go on and on and on. The scriptures that remind us that even though we go through those dark valleys, even though we go through the storms in life, nothing can really harm us because he is with us. 
He is the one who stands with us in the midst of the storm. He defends us. He is our defender. But let me challenge you here. Because this goes against a lot of today's mindset. He is your defender, but you've got to be in the right position at his feet worshiping him. He is your defender. The one requirement is that you got to be at his feet worshiping him. You can't be on the street corners fighting for your right. You can't be going around telling people and shouting how unfair life is demanding justice. You've got to be humble in self. Humble yourself enough to be down at his feet. Weep. Wash his feet. And that's when he stands up to defend you. We get so caught up with fighting for our rights. When what we really need to do is bow down to worship him and allow him to fight our battles. Allow him to fight our battles. When I met Jesus, he defended me because he fought for my, he fought for me. When I met Jesus, of course, he forgave me. He forgave me. How many of us have experienced real forgiveness? I know I have. When the Pharisee invited him, said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. It says two people owed this money lender money. One owed him 500 bucks, another person owed him 50. Basically, one is to 10 times more than the other guy. Neither of them could pay him back, so he forgave them both their debts. Forgave both of their debts. Now, which one would love him more? Now, Simon, you can see he's being really sarcastic right here. I suppose the guy with the greater debt. Jesus jumps on that. Hey, you know what? You're right. Bingo. You got it. You said it yourself. And then he turns to this woman and says to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into the, to your house. You don't, did not give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I have entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. You got to realize this. She did not do stuff to win his forgiveness. She was already forgiven. But as her great love, that was an expression of a worship as she wiped his feet with her tears and with the hair and poured perfume. That did not earn her the salvation. That did not earn her forgiveness. It, because she was already forgiven that was just an expression of the forgiveness that she has experienced. He says to her, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Man, the good news about not walking around with the burden of sin, guilt, shame, and everything else. The good news of realizing that God has forgiven me. Man, it overwhelms me when I think about his forgiveness. He has forgiven me. You got to think about it. If I lend you 50 bucks, and this is what we really got to understand. This is what's amazing about forgiveness. 
if I give you 50 bucks or 500, whatever, $500, and you can't pay it back, and I forgive you your debt, realize I'm the one who's still losing. I'm the one. The debt is not just disappear. I eat that debt. That's what Jesus does for us. That's what God is all about. Jesus forgave us, but that debt didn't just disappear. Jesus took our debt, paid the price for us. That's what forgiveness is all about. It wasn't just like, okay, I forgive you. I've got billions of dollars. I forgive you. It means nothing. No, it cost him the life of his own son when he forgave you. Now, when I met Jesus, I realized he forgave me. Takes a whole nother meaning when I realize he incurred the debt that I should have paid. He incurred the debt that I should have paid. When I met Jesus, he forgave me, but he also saved me. Of course, if I went and she went the same way that she was going, she would not end up in the right place at all. That was destruction waiting to happen. But Jesus says there, your faith has saved you. Verse 50. Your faith has saved you. Paul says what? You are saved by grace through faith. Her faith and his grace. That's how we experience salvation. We have got salvation takes a step of faith on our behalf. She had to take that risk. Faith is a risk basically, right? But it's a good calculated risk because you know your faith will be rewarded at the end. But she had to take the risk of coming into a Pharisee's house. The one person who probably is waiting to stone her to death. Yet she takes that risk and comes there because of that faith. She is saved. What lies ahead for her was just destruction. But when she met Jesus, her faith and his grace and she was saved. When I met Jesus, the last part it says your faith has forgiven or your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Church, it's simple. My troubles don't disappear. My issues don't get solved all the way. But the peace I have in my life as I go through that, I would not exchange that for anything else. And here's this is what it is. It's the peace that he gives me as I face the consequences of the decisions I've already made. I can't always run away from the consequences of my choices, but he promises his peace in the midst of those consequences too. He promises me his peace. His peace in the midst of all my trouble, all my suffering, all my pain. When I met Jesus, he gave me peace. I just want to make five quick points as we finish out here. The evidence of her transformed life. Number one, the genuineness of her conviction. The genuineness of her conviction seen in the tears that ran down her face even when Jesus had not spoken a single word to her. The conviction in her heart, and I can picture this, she's just standing there and now she can't control it. She's in his presence. She cannot hold it back. And the tears start coming down. Now, she's not crying to get the attention of everybody around. She's not doing that. That is not her intention at all. 
She's not trying to create a scene where everybody like, oh, everybody turns, oh, what's happening to you right now? She's crying because of the conviction that she is feeling in the presence of God, in the presence of Jesus. And as she's standing there at his feet, the tears roll down her cheeks, her face, as she's convicted, convicted about who Jesus really is and who she really is in his presence. That conviction overwhelms her. She can't hold it in. It's kind of interesting because the word that, she, that is used that says that it wet her, Jesus' feet, is the word breco, which really means rain. So it wasn't just a drip of water. It was like raining down on him. That's the genuineness of her conviction. Genuineness of her conviction. I think about, I've been, while I was in India, I'd go visit one friend of mine used to do a lot of prison ministry. And several times I'd go to prison with him to uh, minister. They had a chapel there and I'd go to minister there. And I'd, the number, I mean, I've been there several times, but there were at least a couple of times when I've seen, as I was preaching, and it was a Good Friday message and Easter that time. And I was preaching and I had this guy who was, how many of you remember Brandon? Okay, so he was Brandon, but. Double his size in terms of muscle. That's all he did. Convicted of brutally murdering four people in a fit of rage. And as I was preaching, he was at the back crying. When you encounter Jesus and the conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit, you cannot help rein in those emotions. He wasn't trying to make a scene. He was all the way back. And we spoke and we became kind of friends every time I'd go visit. But the conviction he had as he stood there face to face with the reality of who he was and what her Savior did for him. He could not control his emotions. And that's exactly what's happening here. The tears were a sign of a genuine conviction. And then you see what happens. You see genuine conviction, but also you see the depth of the gratitude as she starts washing and wiping his feet with her hair. Now, no woman would ever let down their hair in public. If you read the law, it was grounds for divorce, actually, if the woman showed up with loose hair, because that was a woman with loose morals as such. But she was okay because she was grateful for what he had done and what he was doing in her life right there. The depth of her gratitude as she realizes, now, you know what? I can picture her like all of a sudden, oh no, I've wet his feet. I don't have a towel. She didn't come prepared for that. What can I do? Use my hair. But she didn't care what people were thinking because she was so moved with gratitude for what Jesus had already done and is doing in her life right there at that moment. She's wiping his feet with her hair. One person said in wiping his feet with her hair, she was manifesting a kind of non-self-conscious, shameless emotion, affection, and gratitude. Because what she was doing was just a reflection of what God had already done in her heart. Wiping his feet with her hair. You see the genuineness of her conviction with her tears. The depth of her gratitude as she wiped his feet with her hair. And you see the sincerity of her devotion as she kissed his feet. Kissed his feet. The word there is kataphilio. It's kind of an interesting word. Because it's the same word used in Luke 15 when the prodigal son comes back. 
It's the word the father throws his arms around him and kisses him. So the idea is not just kissing a person, it's giving him a hug, hugging his neck, holding on to, embracing. And that's what she's doing to Jesus right there. That's the devotion that she has, the sincerity of her devotion as she's clinging to him, hugging his feet and kicking his feet, kiss kicking his feet, kissing his feet. That is what wholehearted devotion is all about. If I have Jesus, I have everything. Nothing else really matters. Do we have that kind of devotion when we come to Jesus? I'm going to hold on to you because without you, I have no hope. Without you, I am really lost. Without you, I really cannot make it even the next day. And Lord Jesus, I have you. I'm going to hold on to you, cling to you, and not give you up for anything else. That's what it's all about. Her devotion as she kissed his feet and held on to him. Do we cling to Jesus in the same way? Because that's evidence of real wholehearted devotion. Sincerity of devotion. Wholehearted devotion for that blind man a few weeks back was him going all over the place telling people one story. You know what? I was blind but now I see. For Zacchaeus he was a total transformation. Total use, the sinner, he, now he's becoming someone who's so generous with everybody. He's talked about the Samaritan woman, she's running and hiding. Now she tells everybody, come and see what Jesus did for me. For this woman, it was simple, holding on to Jesus. That pearl of great price. I've got Jesus and I don't need anything else. I'm not going to give it up. Genuineness of her conviction as she cried. The depth of her gratitude as she wiped his feet with her tears. Now the sincerity of her devotion as she kissed his feet. And now the last part, the extravagance of her love as she poured expensive perfume and anointed him. The extravagance, she did not hold back. Archaeologists have found several jars, alabaster jars in the perfume. They know it was expensive. Everybody knows it was expensive because if you read the other gospels, they get mad at the woman who's doing that, right? Her genuine love for him did not have a price tag. Oh God, if you do this, then I will love you. It doesn't matter. I'll do. I'll give you everything because I know you have already loved me. Because I know you have already loved me. The extravagance of her love, the conviction, the gratitude, the devotion. She can't wait any longer to anoint his head. She breaks the jar right there, anoints his feet. It's all or nothing when it comes to our devotion. There's no putting perfume back into the jar now that it's broken. You've got to give it all to Christ. You've got to give it all. There's no price tag. Really, there is no price tag when it comes to loving him. Loving him with wholehearted devotion. Bow your heads with me at this time. It was never attention-grabbing emotion. It was her sincere conviction. She stood there crying. Stood there crying in his presence because she realized who he really was and what he was doing in her life. He stood there. She stood there crying.
wiping his dirty feet because we know that the the host had not washed his feet she realizes you know what i've made a mess i got to clean it up guess what i don't care what people say about me they have already made up their mind i just let my hair loose right now and wipe that filth But she doesn't stop, you know. She said, "Okay, his feet are clean now. Now I can step back and listen to what he has to say." When you have tasted and seen God's goodness, there is no way you can really just walk away from that. Now you can make the choice to run and do your own thing for a while and do your own thing, but the truth is this: when you have a genuine encounter with Christ. deep down you're going to cling to him you're going to hold on to him because you know the difference he makes in your life because without him i know i would be lost without him i would have no hope without him i wouldn't have the confidence to get out of bed really and face the world but i've got jesus and that's all that's all that really really matters to me i'm just going to hold on to him because i know he cares for me he defends me he forgives me he saves me he provides for me he knows how to take care of me i'm going to hold on to him because he is the lover of my soul i don't have to do anything i don't have to perform to earn his attention i don't have to perform to get his attention or earn his approval or i don't have to perform and do stuff and be stuff get my life in order in order for him to love me he loves me the way i am when i come into his presence I'm so overwhelmed by who he is. Just let's stand to our feet. What this woman did was worship him. As she as the tears fell on his feet as she wiped those tears with his with her hair and as she anointed it all she was doing is worshiping him how she was kissing and clinging to his feet that was her act of worship 